Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 18, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Anchor Bay. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we just want to take a moment before we get into God's Word to just kind of quietly assess where we are. What do we need to hear from God this morning? What are we bringing into the room as we sit here worshiping? Can you guys hear me okay? Are we good on sound? Good. Okay. Um, so just kind of take a minute, self-examine, and then invite the Holy Spirit to speak to your life with whatever you brought into the room. And then I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God, we acknowledge that we come to you in so much need. And there are so many things that weigh on our hearts and our minds. We want to matter. We want to be worthy. We want to prove ourselves just like the Corinthians did. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would show us your love in profound ways, that we would see ourselves as you do as saints who are called to be part of your work in the world and to bring you honor and glory and praise. We offer this time, this study to you as an act of our worship. We pray that it would be sticky, that it would speak to us throughout our week as we interact with our regular, normal lives day to day, that you would continue the conversation long after this morning. 
We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, before we get started, there was a passage in 1 Corinthians that really spoke to me this week as I was prepping for my sermon. So um, it's right after our passage that was read this morning. So I will just read that, mostly for my benefit, but I'll read it for yours as well. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Well, our story starts in the land of Achaia, circa AD 55, a ship bobs in the lee tide of the icy Aegean Sea. A ship is headed for a great city. It's a port city, a city that's known for its wealth, wine, and women. But its wealth, wine, and women are not why the ship is headed there. It's, it's headed to deliver a letter. And it's a strongly worded letter. And some of the letter is written in code. What code? Well, it was the code of the day. Between the lines of this letter, we can read the city's unwritten rules. And there were many unwritten rules in this city. So first, let's talk a little bit more, as we've been talking for the last couple weeks, about what was going on in our city of Corinth. So for starters, the city of Corinth had codes about what you could eat and how you could eat it, how you can conduct business and how you could do it, your place in society and how you could live in that society. There were unwritten rules for everything, and if you broke one of the rules, there would be unwritten consequences as well. And what those rules and consequences look like had everything to do with where you ranked on the social ladder, on the social hierarchy of the day. Everyone knew where they ranked on that ladder in that world. And I'm going to share a little bit about what that ladder looked like, but it's going to be a little bit oversimplified. In reality, their social hierarchy was kind of multi-layered and multifaceted like ours did, where you placed on the ladder had to do with your lineage and your ethnic background, your gender, but you can kind of get the gist of how it sort of worked in that day. So here was generally how society, how the, the hierarchy was structured in the Roman world in that day, and therefore in the city of Corinth that was dominated by that world. So the highest place of importance was obviously the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor at the time of Paul was a man named Nero. You might have heard of Nero. Nero ruled most of the world at that time and therefore the city of Corinth. Nero was believed to be, they called him the lord and savior, or the lord and benefactor of the world. It was written on every coin. So you would constantly have these reminders of how important and special and divine Nero was. He was the bringer of peace on earth. And if you didn't believe that Nero was the most divine and wisest and most wonderful person in the whole universe, then he would just have you brutally tortured and killed. Just under Nero was a group of 600 of the next most powerful men in the world. They were called the senators the ruling class. These were the, the politicians of the day. And before you could even consider being part of the senatorial class, you had to meet some pretty strict criteria. You had to have a good family name. You had to be well-accomplished, well-educated, well-known. You needed to have the right clothes. You needed to look the part. And you needed to own land. You needed to own a lot of land. And it couldn't just be any kind of land. It had to be expensive land. It could be worth no less than the equivalent of 250,000 times one day's average wage in that world, or about 685 years of work. 
So in that day, it would have been the equivalent of, in our day, of about $12.5 million worth of land, which is about $12.5 million more land than I own, so I have a lot of work to do to become an ancient Roman senator. So we're at five different levels of senator, and if you had all the right credentials, and you had the name and the reputation and the mansions on the coast, you could potentially start at the bottom and you could work your way up the levels and become an even higher class of senator. So then there were, so there were the, the emperor, the senators, then the next class down were the equestrians. And these guys, and I say guys because it's um, only male dominated at this level, women couldn't even think about getting this high. They could be married to an equestrian, but you could never be an equestrian. So these guys only needed about half of the, the property of the senators, but they had another contribution, horses. That's why they were called equestrians. So they had lots and lots of horses. So the city of Corinth was in the country of Greece, or the territory of Greece, but it was a Roman colony at the time. So underneath the, the senators and the equestrians, next down on the ladder, you had your ordinary middle-class Roman citizens. But Roman citizens weren't just ordinary people. They had kind of a special privilege in that world. If you were a citizen, you had class mobility. You could work your way up the ladder. You could vote. You could own property. You had rights and protections. You were owed due process of law. There were things that you could do in that society to punish someone of a lower ranking that you would never think about doing to a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship was a high privilege. Roman citizenship was nice protection if you, were, if you could get it because there were a lot of people who did not have the privilege of Roman citizenship, people like freedmen. Freedmen had some social mobility. They could move around the world as they liked. They could work as they liked, but they weren't citizens. They had no rights. Most of them hovered around poverty their whole lives. They survived, but barely. And just below freedmen, at the very, very bottom of society were slaves. Slaves were not free. They had no rights. They had no social mobility. So no matter where you were on society's ladder, if you could, you were always trying to work your way up. And so this mentality became woven into the fabric of their society. They were working to, to find their way up, and they, they called it the race for honors. No one really called it that out loud, but they all knew about this race, the race for honor, because everything about life, everything, was about getting more power and more status and more rec recognition and more honor for yourself and for your family and for your people group. Honor wasn't like we think of the word honor and it's kind of about you like get an award at a fancy dinner or someone says something nice about someone else to honor that person. It wasn't like that in that day. Honor was everything to them. Honor was what gave you weight in that world. Honor was the thing that gave you value or worth. And to get honor, you couldn't just believe that you were honorable. You couldn't just state that you were an honorable person. Everyone else had to agree that you were honorable too. The people who lived in Corinth had a proverb. They said, honor is in the eyes. And they meant that honor is in the eyes of everyone else. Because the only thing that mattered in that world was how you were viewed in the eyes of society around you. You were only as valuable to that world as everyone else said that you were. Sometimes in the, the people in the ancient world, if they could afford it, they would literally hire someone of lower class to walk around in the city streets just declaring how wonderful and honorable you were. Because they wanted everyone to hear in the eyes of someone else, I'm great, I'm honorable, and I need someone to tell you about it. It was a culture of constant scorekeeping, of competition, of sizing each other up. And for them, it was actually part of the human story. It was part of what made you human. The Greek philosophers claimed that the race for honors was what distinguished the humans from the animals. One ancient writer said that Greeks would give up everything, money, 
power, virtue, all for more honor and praise. Honor was their highest value. Honor was what made life matter. Honor was what made you human. Honor was everything. Anthropologists who've studied this culture had another word for, for, what, for what this culture looked like. They called it agonism, which comes from the Greek word contestant. Contestant. Because every man and every woman was a contestant, and every social interaction was a contest. And it kept them working constantly for approval, for status, for worth, for praise and affirmation. Even good deeds, or like if I was going to give you a gift, it would be done strategically to get more recognition from everyone else about how honorable and great that you were. They always were thinking about this. And so it's not hard to imagine that in a world like this, the sort of envy and insecurity would start to creep in to the way that they lived day to day. The race for honors was rampant in the city of Corinth. And it's all under the surface of the letters that we read. Well, the Apostle Paul, he knew the city pretty well. He himself was culturally Greek. I've said before, he was religiously Jewish. He was culturally Greek. And he was a Roman citizen. So he had all of those protections. And he was part of this infrastructure in the race for honor. And he would have known all of these unwritten rules and social codes and, and expectations. And he spent a fair amount of time with the Corinthians, getting to know them and inviting them to get to know this Jesus. And so some of these Corinthians, they start to, to follow this little Jesus movement, and they start to form a church there in Corinth. But it's hard to live the way that Jesus called them to live, because they are still living in that same culture. Their culture told them to keep climbing up the ladder, but this Jesus that they're following is saying to take up their cross and die. Their culture put them on the path of ascent, and Jesus' culture put them on a path of descent. It was very hard for them to understand. It went against everything that they had ever been taught about the way that the world is supposed to work. And so Paul addresses their cultural expectations in our passage that we read today. So this morning we are continuing our sermon series, which we've been calling Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, elephants in the church, it's just that, that big thing in the corner, if we imagine it to be an elephant, that big thing in the corner that no one's talking about but everyone knows is there and this morning, we're going to take a look at this culture of honor that was under the surface of everything that they did in their world. The race for honor influenced their interactions, their motivations, how they led their families, how they parented, how they did business, how they taught their children, how they saw themselves in the world. It was a social code that they all knew, but they didn't know that they knew it because it was just the air that they were swimming in. It was how the world worked. And it's a social code that you and I know pretty well, too. Because the race for honor, it didn't die with the Corinthians. We value the honor trade, too. And it might not be quite as blatant or outlandish as it was back then. It's subtle for us. It's a quiet quest. But deep inside every human heart, whether we realize it or not, deep inside your heart and my heart is this innate desire to matter to someone, to, to prove ourselves worthy to make a difference in the world, to someone, even if that someone is just a family member or our neighborhood or ourselves. We want people to care about us because there's something about us worth caring about. We want people to respect us because there's something about us worth respecting. And in and of itself, that desire, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's, it's part of how we were designed. If you look at the creation story in Genesis 1, it says this, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
right from the very beginning. God imprinted God's likeness onto humanity. And then the passage goes on to say what this means. It says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Right from the get-go. Human beings are given the unique task of caring for God's world as rulers and leaders over creation along with God. In other words, we were not made to be irrelevant or to watch the world pass us by quietly in the corner. We were designed to join God's story, to partner with God and with each other for the care of God's kingdom through the time and the talents that God has entrusted us with, and to help exercise God's creative rule over the earth. It's a good thing. Our desire to matter in the world is actually part of what it means to bear the image of God. Because when we are partnering with God, then everything that we do is about bringing honor to God and to God's kingdom with all of who we are. So it's a good thing, but for many of us, if not most of us, at some point, this desire to matter, it gets mixed up with other kinds of motives, with things like fear and shame and insecurity and spite sometimes. And it leads us to to desire honor for, for ourselves instead of God's kingdom or in addition to God's kingdom. And subtly, we we end up comparing ourselves, our marriages, our relationships, our families, our careers, to our culture's ideals of success, or our friends' communicated ideals of success, about how we think life is supposed to be, or how our bodies are supposed to look, or how our families are supposed to act. And it doesn't take too long living in our culture before we can start to believe that unless we prove something in some arena that we care about, whether that arena is parenting or our job opportunities or mobility or our creativity or talents, unless we prove it, if what we do isn't going anywhere, then maybe our life doesn't mean anything. And we see it everywhere. This culture of comparison and scorekeeping. In the corporate world, if you're part of the corporate world, we see who can climb the the highest and the fastest and the furthest in the jungle gym. In the academic world, we see who can make tenure the youngest, who can publish articles and books the fastest, who can make the most and wisest contributions in the field. Students are compared by their test scores, their GRE scores, their GPAs. In yearbooks, we vote on best smile, most likely to succeed. Magazines come out with the world's 100 most powerful women, the world's 400 wealthiest people, the 25 most influential Hispanics in the world, the 100 most beautiful people. And you and I, we may not aspire to be on the cover of magazines, but we want people to look at us and say, how does he do it? How does she pull it all off? Amazing. And before we know it, we take the good gifts that God has given us, and we start using them to impress people. There were a few years I was working as a a youth pastor, and I remember one of my students, she was so impressive, and she had so much going for her. She was a straight A's honor student. She was editor of the yearbook, captain of the swim team. She did everything. And I got to know her pretty well. And getting to know her, I started to realize that her parents were just giving her praise and affirmation for the things that she could do. They never told her that they loved her just for who she was or because they had chosen to love her. It was always because of what she did. And I remember sitting down with her and we started talking about that. And I said, do you, do you know that you are loved apart from what you do or how well you do it? And she didn't even have to think about it. She just looked at me and she said, no, I don't know that. And it broke my heart for her, but it broke my heart for so many of us because so many of us are there too. It's it's hard to know that we are loved for more than just what we do or how well we do it. 
Have you ever been there? I know I have. It's so easy for me to just let this cultural lie seep in that I have to appear attractive and charming and intelligent and insightful and successful to matter. And so it's into a world like ours that Paul writes the Corinthian letters. And he writes his letter, and he knows the ins and outs of his society, and his society speaks into our society, these unspoken cultural values of the day. And he writes these words to the church in Corinth. He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Well, the race for honors isn't mentioned explicitly in this passage. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible because they all just knew it was there. But we can read about it in the code and the language of the day. So let's take a few minutes to unpack what Paul is getting at here. So first, it says, Jews demand signs. Jews demand signs. When Paul speaks of the Jews, he's not talking about like our friends and neighbors and family members who live in New England in the 21st century. He's speaking about the good religious folk of his time and culture. These were his own people. And the letter to the Corinthian church, it was written to a Roman colony in a Greek area, but there were enough Jews that were living there that they had built a whole synagogue. And and so the church in Corinth was made up of both Jews and Greeks, or what he kind of called interchangeably as, as Greeks and Gentiles. So if you see Greeks and Gentiles, he's talking about everybody who is not Jewish. But here Paul is speaking specifically to and about the Jewish people. And in Jewish history, Israel had God acting through these powerful signs and miracles to show God's power and strength and might. There were great signs surrounding the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. They had the encounter with God and the people at Mount Sinai. Signs and wonders were seen in the days of Elijah and at the opening of the temple in Solomon's day. And they'd been waiting, the Jewish people had been waiting for a day when someone would come back in and demonstrate God's power in fresh ways once again through miraculous signs and wonders and through overthrowing their Roman oppressors through military victory. And they had a word for who that person would be. They called that person the Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ or the anointed one. Christ and Messiah are synonyms that both mean the anointed one. It was this person that they were waiting for. And they believed that when the Christ came, he would restore their dignity. He would restore their power, their greatness in the world as Jewish people. He would make the Jewish people matter. To them, the word Christ was synonymous with their honor. Jews look for signs. And then Paul says, Greeks look for wisdom. So I mentioned in the beginning that, that Greece or that Corinth was a port city, which meant that there were these travelers who were constantly in and out of it, and they would, they would bring all of these latest ideas and philosophies and knowledge from other parts of the world. And so one of the things that they prized in that culture was really good public speaking. The art of rhetoric was the most prized of talents in their day, which, so they would have these kind of great contests and these celebrity speakers would come in and they would wow you and they would try to compete for audiences in Corinth. And it makes sense, entertainment in that day, they didn't have Netflix or radio or YouTube, and so their entertainment back then was really these kind of public live performances. And so these speakers would come in and they would dazzle you with their silver-tongued prose. And they had these events where these, these great debaters would sound off on the latest and greatest of wisdom and ideas and philosophy, and they would compete with each other for who could get the biggest audience. I mean, you think about it, Greece, as we know, is the, the birthplace of philosophers and philosophy, the homeland of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so they held eloquence and and sophisticated speech and arguments in high esteem. And their competitions were most often centered around a single question, 
And that question was, what is wisdom? What is true wisdom? They were all, always on this quest for wisdom. We're going to talk more about wisdom next week in this passage and the passage that's right after it. Wisdom was a big deal in that culture, and it shows up all over the Corinthian letters. The person in that day who could speak about wisdom with the most compelling and polished words was the winner of the competition. And what, do, what does a winner get? What do you get when you are the most dazzling and the most impressive and the most polished public speaker? You get honor. The Jews look for signs, power, miracles, strength. The Greeks look for wisdom, knowledge, articulate and polished speech. And so Paul acknowledges what they are really looking for. And then he writes this. He says, but we, we preach, we speak about Christ crucified. And it's fascinating how Paul approaches this in the next chapter that I read at the beginning of the sermon. He writes, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Paul wants to make it really, really super clear. When he's coming to Corinth as an orator, as a public speaking, he is not doing so for his own glory or his own honor. He is far away from the race for honor. He is here to know and communicate nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what did that mean? Paul doesn't go into detail about what a crucifixion was like. He didn't need to. Everybody already knew. They probably had grown up seeing them around their countryside. Those who hung on the cross hung lowest on society's hierarchy. These people were the worst criminals. They were worse than slaves. Death by crucifixion was assigned to only the worst of the worst, the basest of bottom dwellers. Crucifixion was an expression not just of retribution but of total disgust. Complete and utter rejection and shame by all of society. It was reserved for a person who was so reprehensible that they didn't deserve another breath. So crosses were low, they were made of wood, and they were cut in the shape of a T. And the condemned person would be tied on it or nailed on it if they wanted the punishment to be especially cruel. And because flesh tears easily, they, uh, under the weight of a body, they would support the person by putting a peg under their leg so they could stay on the cross for longer. The condemned person would die slowly and painfully. They would suffocate from being in that position for days on end. It was an excruciating way to die. And it was a punishment that was so painful that Rome refused to impose it on Roman citizens. And it's in this way that Jesus hung on the cross, dying sick and broken on behalf of a world that was sick and broken. He died naked too, which was another symbol of shame. And he, he died under a sign that stated his crime, King of the Jews. And there he was. They could all picture it. Christ crucified. Christ. A title that was synonymous with victory. Christ was supposed to represent the greatest kind of power. The biggest sort of strength. The greatest hope for Israel to finally have the honor that it deserved. Reigning triumphant for all the world to see. Honor is in the eyes. Christ, the symbol of greatest honor crucified. That was a, a word synonymous with weakness and shame. The cross meant the greatest kind of failure. It was the biggest sort of defeat, and it was posted in public for all the world to see because honor is in the eyes, and so is shame. 
Crucified was the symbol of greatest shame you could imagine in that world. And Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified was an oxymoron. To the Jews and the Greeks, this message of the cross is a total waste of time. It is foolishness. It makes no sense. Why would you stand up in a city that values honor and strength and public speaking finesse and wisdom and talk about a leader that you want us to follow who died on a Roman cross? Paul says he knows this sounds like madness to them. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's literally, the word is scandal. It's a scandal to them. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. He's saying that we don't enter the pathway to eternal life through wise investments, fancy degrees, fame, and fortune, or anything that we can prove ourselves, but by going through a blind alleyway that appears to be a dead end. Forget graduate studies in business and law. Forget the seven habits of highly effective people. Forget self-help books and TikTok therapy as a pathway to self-fulfillment. God is going to take you back to school, and its curriculum is otherworldly. It's upside down. It's foolish. It's weak. It looks ineffective. It's a parallel universe in which the weak are considered strong and the foolish are considered wise, and dead-end cul-de-sacs somehow lead to shining streets of gold and a kingdom without end. And it is the cross, it is Christ crucified, he says, that defines this whole new world, and that is the greatest kind of wisdom. It made no sense in that culture, and it makes no sense in our culture. In our culture, we don't value the weak things either. We like the impressive things, the flashy things, the honorable things. But this story, this story is about a different kind of God who establishes a different kind of kingdom. God doesn't work in the way that most of us would work if we were gods, like all at once with billboards and lots of noise and a press release. There are those moments of bigness and grandness and greatness all throughout the Bible for sure. But more often than not, God hints at this other way. That God works through little things, unimpressive things, sometimes what we might consider dishonorable things, through burning bushes and stubborn donkeys and widow's mites and little kids, through lilies and sparrows and shepherds and fishermen and prostitutes and prodigals. And God establishes God's kingdom through a baby in a manger who would grow up to be a convict on a cross. It was only at the end only when God accomplished salvation, all salvation, by dying on a cross, that it became crystal clear that all along God had been truly serious about the most honorable things coming from the least likely of places. It was only when an instrument of cruel execution and torture became somehow the gateway to real and eternal life that the people started to recognize the true way, the true things of God. So many of us in our day we're caught up in the same quest for signs, for wisdom, for the things that will make us matter, or maybe for the, the winning ticket that will fix all of our problems and heal all our wounds, for the right philosophy or psychology that will transform us into the people that we wish we were or we think we should be. You and I are caught up in all the unspoken rules and rituals that we think will bring us more honor. And so to us, in the 21st century, Paul writes, you look for signs, you look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It makes no sense. But then he goes on to say, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Because there on the cross, God took all of our pains and fears and shame, all our failures and defeats, our betrayals, our tiny little sins, and all of our really big ones, all the things that we think make us dishonorable and we're trying to hide or cover up or push away or overcome. And all of the systemic sins, the things in our world and our culture that really are not part of God's way. And all of that died there with Jesus on the cross so that a new culture, a new value, could be resurrected in its place. It's a new kind of way to be, a kind of way to be in which the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's a a culture in which God's power is made perfect in and through our weakness, so we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. A culture in which the words Christ crucified is the greatest kind of wisdom and sign and honor. And I know, I know when we look around our world, it doesn't always feel like Jesus won that battle. It doesn't always feel like Jesus won the battle over sin and shame and death. Our sins come back. Our systems are still broken. We say that sin and shame and death are all drowned during our baptism, but they can swim. But even if the life that we know now is still subject to death and shame and all of those old tendencies, even though we are still living in the same race that we always were, the cross tells us that the final victory doesn't belong to them. Because Jesus doesn't value the things that you and I tend to value. Instead, he chose the weakness, the vulnerability, and the brokenness of the cross. And through it, he entered our places of weakness and woundedness and vulnerability and fears and shame, our secret struggles, all the ones that we try to strengthen and fortify, all the ones that we try to hide. He went straight into the heart of those wounds so that we could be made whole. And the promise that we get when we start to follow Christ, when we identify with Christ crucified, when we identify with his death on the cross, when we allow him to meet us in those areas where we are convinced that we are too broken to be made whole, too broken to be loved, that's when true honor in our lives can start. Because it's in those places of weakness that God can display most powerfully God's own strength. It's not where we are most strong, most confident, most competent, most capable, that we will see God's honor show up in our lives. But when we allow ourselves to be deeply seen, not as we wish we were, but as we really are, and to be loved and embraced anyway. But God's invitation to us, to God's people, isn't just to be healed by the cross and the empty tomb. It's to join that story and to join in the healing. It's to go quietly and gently with compassion and love to other people in the world who don't realize it but are also caught up in the race for honors and to show them a different kind of culture, the culture of the cross, death of all of those old ways and resurrection into a completely new way. Every moment of every day, God is offering the people around us the opportunity to be healed to be set free from that need to prove ourselves worthy. And if what we say at Anchor Bay Church has any relevance to our actual lives, I dream that we as a church can be the kind of people who offer one another that deeper and deeper healing through how we love each other and empower each other and remind each other of who God calls us to be. At the beginning of this letter, we read that we are saints. And we consistently get to call one another into that identity in Christ. I remember one of the first conversations I had with one of my mentors as I was becoming a pastor, and I was telling her a little bit about my life story, and I started talking about all the years that I did what I thought would be really impressive things, and then I started telling her about the years in my 20s when I struggled with clinical depression, and she stopped me, and she smiled, and she said, oh, you struggled with depression? 
good, which was definitely not what I expected her to say. But then she said something that stuck with me. She said, the best ministers are familiar with suffering. The best ministers are familiar with suffering. And she was right. To this day, no one has ever said, hey, can I meet with you for pastoral care? Because you're obviously perfect. Can you teach me how to be? No one has ever said that. But I've had lots of people ask to meet with me, and they say, hey, can we meet sometime? I'm struggling, and I know you've struggled too. It's because I know what it's like to struggle with depression, to struggle in my marriage, to struggle in my relationships and my identity and in a lack of courage, because I am familiar with my own need for the cross that I can share hope with people around me who are struggling and who also need the cross. I like how one of our Greek philosophers, Plato, said it. He said, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. It is upside down in our world to put honor with death and weakness with wisdom and vulnerability with strength. But it is the only way that leads to true freedom and connection and new life totally apart from this need to prove ourselves. So can you imagine for a second what would happen in our community if we could all be truly and fully ourselves without feeling the need to hide or to prove ourselves? Can you imagine the safety that would happen in our community where our love for others doesn't depend on their likability or what they've proven to us, but on Christ's power made perfect in and through their weakness? Can you imagine how freeing it would be to know that you can be honest about everything in your life, that you can grow and you can make mistakes knowing that we aren't going anywhere? Well, I think that would level everything. So right now, I want to invite you to take a moment. And I'm going to invite Jess up to play for us a little bit. So take a moment in quiet to think about your life. And we're going to put some questions on the screen um, for you to answer quietly to yourself and to God on your own. How does the race for honor show up in your life? What arena do you see yourself comparing yourself to other people? How does the race for honor show up in your life? In our passage this morning, it says, The Jews of Paul's day look for miraculous signs of God's power, and the Greeks look for the best wisdom of the day. What do you look for? If you were to answer the question, Jews look for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, I look for blank. How would you fill in that blank? What do you value? What do you put your hope in? And then I want to invite you to think about those words following following that. I look for blank, but we preach Christ crucified. How is that message hard for you? How is that a scandal? How is that a stumbling block or foolishness in the way that you live? How can identifying with Christ's weakness show up instead as power in your life and in the church and in the world? So I'll give you a few minutes to, to think through those questions. Invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate things in your life that maybe you haven't thought of yet, and then I will come back and close us in prayer.
Would you join me in prayer? God, we as humans have always been on a quest for something. We look for the best and the brightest and the most, and we look for that in ourselves and one another. We pray, God, that we would turn to you, that we would learn your way, that we would join into your weakness, your vulnerability, so that we would understand our weakness and our vulnerability in light of your power, your strength, your grace, and your honor alive in us. We pray that these things would sink into our understanding of the world, that as we go about our life, you would illuminate where the race for honor shows up, where we've been swimming in it and we haven't seen it, but that you would teach us a new way, that we would identify with Christ crucified in those ways. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a moment, we are going to receive communion, and so we want to invite our entire congregation to be with us for communion. That means if you have a kid in kids' crew, we want to invite you to head downstairs and pick them up during this next song, and then we will all come back together for communion, and the rest of us will continue to join in song worship. <laughs>